One of my favorite late night television segments of all times is titled, this is kind of funny, The Lie Witness News. So, I mean, the title's a spoof. It's a play on, on the words eyewitness news. Uh, those words created, of course, by Albert Thomas Primo in 1935 uh, came to be associated with literally hundreds of news channels. But the late night edition is funny. It parodies Primo's format uh, by placing a realistic looking newscaster on the street. Okay, I want you to just picture this. They go out with a camera and a microphone and the actor news person uh, on the streets of California interviews random individuals. Now, here, here's what makes it funny. Each interview features outrageous statements that are attributed to well-known political or Hollywood or athletic figures. Now, in every case, it should be absolutely obvious to the interviewees that the statements that they're given to make comments on are gross misrepresentation of, this, of the truth. But here's what happens. Most participants faced with lights and cameras respond as if the lie is in fact a reality. And what, what the result is? Top-notch comedy at the expense of unsuspecting pedestrians. So for me, what these comedic sessions illustrate is a phenomenon that sociologists have talked about for centuries. Uh, while we, I think we believe this as human beings are endowed with, our, with what are inarguably the greatest thinking machines in the universe, namely our minds, isn't it true that we often see or hear things through lenses that misinterpret information or data that's before us? Technical term for this, of course, is cognitive distortion. So what's been interesting to me is the fact that this phenomena plays itself out in every arena or discipline of our life, including the way that we sometimes handle God's word or the scriptures. Uh, today in our, our episode of God Size Living, I want to lift up a topic that I've always believed is subject to distortion and theological misrepresentation. Specifically, I want to wrestle today with what is meant by Christians who insist that God works all things for our good, a truth most people tell me in the church that is clearly scriptural. But is it? Is it? So in our episode today, I want to bounce uh, between a couple of chapters of Scripture, beginning with Daniel chapter 6. We're going to go back there, pick up where we left Daniel last week. But I also want to journey towards this, this moment in history where Babylon falls into the hands of the Medo-Persian Empire. Uh, I want to look at that event. It's one of the most significant within the lives of God's called out people Israel. But I don't want to rest there. I've come to believe that to fully understand this moment in history, uh, you, you have to understand Paul's words spoken almost 600 years later to the Christians of Rome. I want to allow Romans chapter 8, uh, particularly its 28th verse, to raise a, a couple of questions. Here they are. Number one, what, what do Christians typically mean when they say that God works all things for good? What do they mean? Number two, from a scriptural perspective, are they right? Is that true? Number three, how does Daniel chapter six inform the lens through which we might best understand how God works among his people? So back in the year 2012, two authors, E. Randolph Richards and Braden J. O'Brien, wrote a book that uh, at least got me thinking about the lenses through which we read and understand the Bible. 
Uh, maybe you've read the book. It's titled Misreading Scripture with Western Eyes. If you haven't read it, I know it sounds a little outdated, 2012, but I, I'm telling you, its content is applicable. It's relevant to our current our current milieu. I, I recommend it. In, in the book, the authors are reminding us that when we read the Bible, I think it's easy to forget that we're not reading a Western, but rather a, a Hebrew, Semitic, Greco-Roman text. I mean, whether we're in the Old or New Testament, I think it's important to recognize that when we read the scriptures, the lens through which the original hearers received the word of God is different than that of our Western ears, right? And that point should be a duh, but I think it gets overlooked. I'm going to give you an example. When I teach the, the Revelation, uh, I, I always remind readers that the book is more Hebraic and structured than Greek, and it certainly is not Western. So here's what that means. If you read the book of Revelation, you'll notice that the world ends multiple times and then it begins again. So what's going on? Well, simply put, the writer, John, under inspiration, is literally writing in circles, with each circle being descriptive of the same period of time. It always begins with the birth of Jesus, concludes with the destruction of our current earth and its replacement by a new earth made by God to endure for eternity. So I'm going to be pointed here. If you don't know Hebrew structure, that is, if you try to read the Revelation in Western or linear fashion, you are going to get utterly lost in the story. You, you, will, you will not know which end is up. And I think the same thing is true of the biases that we bring into our reading of the Bible. It's what Richards and O'Brien are trying to, to bring to the table. Just this recognition that there are cultural factors that influence the way we read and hear Scripture. So uh, I'm going to give you some examples. First are additions. Uh, we grew up in the West. We get some ideas in our head that are not necessarily right. And we begin to attribute what I call Western Proverbs to the Bible. But are they actually in it? Well, well they're not. I'll give, I'm going to give you a quick quiz here. Can you name a few? Can you name some Western Proverbs attributed to the Bible, but they're not actually in it? I'm going to give you a couple. Money is the root of all evil. You've heard it. I've heard it. It's not what the Bible says. How about this one? God won't give you more than you can handle. Oh, my goodness. I hear that over and over from people. Pastor, why is God doing this? He's not supposed to do this. He doesn't give us more than you can handle. The Bible doesn't say that. How about this one? God helps those who help themselves. Thoroughly Western, not scriptural. So sometimes we attribute things to the Bible that just aren't there. Then, then there's other times when we just don't have a word that captures the depth or meaning contained within the original words of the Bible. So um, I was talking to a friend writing a book uh, here not all that long ago, and his working title came around this term shalom. I think we talked about this last week a little bit. The depth of that Hebrew word encompasses a society's laws, its, its system of caregiving, its relational structures, its economic systems, ecosystems. It's an all-encompassing word, and it represents God's vision for a just society. Unfortunately, in the West, we water it down. We translate it with the word peace, and, and sometimes that remains pretty superficial. So my friend talks to his publisher. My working title is Unleashing Shalom. And the publisher does what? He pushes back. It's like, you know what? It's a great title. No one will understand it. So ultimately, 
uh, both my friend and the publisher settle on using the term peace, unleashing peace. They, they know that, all right, maybe it doesn't have the depth of the term shalom, but people will understand it. So you could say it's a case of Western economics winning the war of semantics. And then I, and I think this is the most important element that contributes to misrepresentations that are based upon cultural bias. It's an issue of personalization. Now, this should just make sense to all of us. When I read the Bible, I read it through what? A personal lens. I'm always asking the question, how or what does this have to do with me? Capital M-E, me. And I really like Richard and O'Brien's note here. I'm just going to quote from their book. They, they, here's what they write. They write, quote, the misreading of scriptures often arises, listen to this, from combining our individualism with a more subtle, deeply hidden, and deeply rooted aspect of our Western worldview, namely this, that we still think the universe centers around us. Isn't that true? It's plain American. We see ourselves as the center of scripture, as though God does what he does to satisfy my desires or my needs. But is that accurate? You know, I often tell Western readers of scripture that the language of the Bible is more communal than it is individualistic. I don't mean by that that God's not concerned with how every single one of us as an individual is doing. Of course he is. He knows you to the very number of hairs on your head. But I think it's critical to remember that God does what he does based not upon our individualistic needs, but upon the goal that's before him. It's a kingdom goal, namely bringing those who are apart from him into a living relationship with himself. I mean, from the beginning of time, even before time with birth, God has intentionally been moving everything that happens in history towards his end, towards an eternity with him. I might not understand a particular movement or action of God from my individualistic perspective, but when I look at it through a kingdom lens, everything God does is towards the end of bringing souls into eternity, everything which allows us to, today to marry together the action of Daniel 6 and the words of Paul spoken to Christians living in Rome many years later. I'm going to invite you to come back with me for just a moment to Daniel 6. Remember where we are in the narrative. The date is October 11, 539 B.C. The time is 5.30 p.m. The handwriting on the wall has been read. Babylon has been weighed and found lacking. In fact, I'm just going to say this as plainly as I can. The kings of Babylon have pushed away the pursuit of the Holy Spirit to bring them to faith. Their time is up. Hardened against God, God is orchestrating within the context of history the fall of what was considered at the time to be an impenetrable fortress. Gubaru, that's his name, the Medo-Persian general, unleashes his attack upon the great city of Babylon and within one day, one single day, Babylon has fallen. Its leading rulers, its military, cut to the ground. In fact, I'm just going to say this. This military defeat, as described by historians, apart from the scriptures, is to me nothing short of stunning. In fact, to this day, instructors at West Point, the U.S. Military Academy, even the Air Force Academy, read and study as a part of understanding military strategy, the battle for Babylon. They study this incident. It represents one of the greatest military victories of all time. The battle is part of history, but more importantly, 
It's a part of his story. You know, when I read the story of Babylon's fall into the hands of Cyrus and Persia, there's, there's a verse in the New Testament that comes to mind. This is important. I want you to get this. The verse is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It's verses 11 and following, where Paul reminds us that when we look at what's going on around us, what we see with our eyes is only part of the story. There's always more going on than our physical eyes can see. I should remember these words with me. Paul writes, quote, Now I see through a glass dimly, but then I shall see face to face, end quote. Think about what those words mean. Paul is talking about our inability, oftentimes to see or understand what God's doing at any given moment in history. And I think the same thing is true in our individual lives. I see, but to use Paul's words, through a glass dimly. In other words, when, when I look either at what God is doing in the world around me or in my life as an individual, it's kind of like looking through a glass that's fuzzy. I can't get a clear view. Uh, not from my individualistic perspective. But what faith's telling me is this. God is working. He's working out his plan to expand his kingdom. And that includes his inviting of you and me into the work of his mission. Faith tells me that I, I might not see or be able to even make sense out of what he's doing or allowing to happen in my life, but I trust that is towards the good of his kingdom. Someday when I'm face to face with him, I'll see it. So in the time of Daniel, just think about this. Life is being turned upside down in one single night. Everything people knew, the ground people stood on is shaken to its core. People were wondering, what's, what's happening? Strong people used to controlling their lives, lost control. Children who enjoyed the security of their homes lost all security. Banks were emptied out. Familiar buildings were torn to the ground. Yet in it all, God was at work doing exactly what needed to be done. He was turning a page in history, yes. But more importantly, he was turning a page in his story. Daniel watched it all through a glass dimly. But through the eyes of faith, he knew God is here. He learned how to trust. Kind of leads me back to Romans and our interpretation of Paul's words. In Romans 8, this verse, I'm going to just say it again. It's, it's been popularized within our Western Christianity. Verse 28. So it reads as follows. And we know that for those who love God, God works all things for good for those who are called according to his purpose. End quote. So I'm going to ask again, what, what do those words mean? I guess over my years of ministry here in the West, I found that it's really easy for us to individualize these words so that they read in such a way as to suggest that no matter what's happening in my life, God is going to turn things around. Everything's going to come out the way that I want it to. It's going to work it for my good. So um, examples, I might be going through a divorce today, but you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to end up with someone better tomorrow. Or, hey, I may be going through a battle with cancer right now, but God is going to bring just the right medicine, just the right doctor. I'm going to get better. Or, yeah, my kiddo is depressed right now, but I just know she's going to turn it around and then the light's not far away. But is that really what Romans 8, 28 means? I want you to hear me on this. I do believe that God is compassionate at his core. He doesn't rejoice in pain and celebrate its place in our life. But that said, there are times 
when the person or the patient doesn't get better, no matter what medicine or treatment, when depression actually deepens, when the pain of divorce lingers and lingers and lingers, does that mean God's not present? I don't think so. What it means is what? We see through a glass dimly. The reality is that we often, in fact, more often than we'd like to admit, cannot see what God is doing in our lives, at least not with our physical eyes. Here's what we can see. With eyes of faith, we can see with absolute certainty that God is at work carrying out his kingdom purpose. That's why it's so important in our prayer life to just pray, God, help me align my life to your purpose. It's not the other way around. doesn't work the other way. Doesn't does not work to try to force God to align to your personal purpose, to your desires and worships. That, that's a surefire way to bring pain into your life. Now we pray, Lord, I may not understand or even like what's happening in my life right now, but I believe this that there's something more important than my desires or my plans or my wishes, and that something is what you're doing to accomplish your kingdom ends. Help me give myself to my last breath to that. So what does Romans 8.28 mean? Not, not that God will make life turn out the way I desire it to, but he will work within us, within our hearts, to align who we are with what he is doing in his kingdom, and in this we find peace or true shalom. I want to close with this with three questions and just give them to you uh, to wrestle with this week. Number one, I want to ask you, are there places in your life right now where God just doesn't make sense? Where what's happening, it's not what you plan, it's not what you want, it's not what you even like. What are those places? Number two, given this, how are Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 13, now we see through a glass dimly, helpful? Notice, I didn't say how do they take your pain away. I said, how are they helpful to you? And then number third, what's standing? This is important. What's standing in the way of you trusting that what God is doing or allowing to happen in your life today is for the good of his kingdom? Well, that's all for this week. Next week, I want to move a little bit deeper into chapter six and the beginning of Cyrus's rule. We're going to meet an old Daniel, yet in his old age, a Daniel has a lot to teach us about what it means to be in the world, not of the world but for the world. Till next week, I'm going to be praying for you. I appreciate your prayers for me, especially in this new year. Uh, for this week, I'm just going to ask that, uh, that God bless you. And as always, I hope you have a God-sized week. <music>